0: Welcome to Season 6, Episode 5 of the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer using the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne. Each week, we use a movie, a novel, or a short story to study different storytelling principles so that we can deepen our understanding of story and level up our craft. My name is Leslie Watts, and I'll be leading the discussion today. Here with me are my fellow roundtablers, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Kim Kessler. This week, I'm continuing my study of point of view and narrative device by looking at The Bear Went Over the Mountain, a short story by Alice Munro, originally published in The New Yorker in 1999, and subsequently adapted in the 2006 film Away From Her, which was written and directed by Sarah Polley. As always, this is an adult conversation, and you might hear some adult words. Here's a breakdown of the short story. Beginning Hook Fifty years into Grant and Fiona's marriage, Fiona begins showing signs of dementia. But when Fiona is found wandering by police, Grant must decide whether to let Fiona go for her safety to an assisted living facility. They decide on Meadow Lake, and she moves in though Grant is prohibited from visiting her for 30 days. In the middle build, when Grant visits Fiona for the first time, she has grown close with Aubrey and doesn't recognize who Grant is. He continues to visit and she to tolerate his visits while she and Aubrey grow closer. But when Fiona's health deteriorates after Aubrey leaves, Grant must decide whether he's willing to contact Aubrey's wife, Marion, to see if a visit would help Fiona. He goes to see Marion and she refuses because she can't afford to pay for his care there and keep her home. On the way home, Grant realizes he mishandled the situation. In the ending payoff, Grant arrives home to find two messages from Marion asking him to a local dance. He analyzes the situation, wondering if he could convince her to give up Aubrey and her home. But when she calls again late to see if she'd missed his call, Grant must decide whether to return the call and pursue Marion. He does call, and later he takes Aubrey to visit Fiona. Now in the film... We see Fiona has been moved to the second floor, which is a significant thing for her. And we also see more of the details about the nature of Grant's relationship with Marion. They go on more than one date. They have sex. And on the day when Grant takes Aubrey to see Fiona, Marion is packing up her home. So we assume that she has sold it to finance Aubrey's permanent stay at Meadow Lake. And as Kim mentioned before recording, it's likely that Marion is moving in with Grant. So what's the genre here? I'm calling the global genre morality testing triumph with a very close secondary marriage love story plot. Now, I see these as very close, but this is my thinking. Grant is tested with two best bad choices each time he recognizes he won't be able to get what he wants from his relationship with Fiona. In the beginning hook, Grant lets go of living with Fiona so she can be safe. In the middle build, he lets go of the hope of keeping their partnership alive in hopes that he can restore her health and she can avoid the second floor. In the ending payoff, he chooses to be with Marion. So Fiona can be with Aubrey. Okay, so Anne, do you have some additional thoughts about the genre and the overall, the macro structure?
1: Yeah, I read the story before I watched the movie and I did do both, though the film is, it's a lovely film, it really is, with some absolutely amazing performances. It's it's really worth a watch just to see the acting. I got so much more out of analyzing the text and I like the points that you bring out about how the film kind of over-delivers on some of the details from the story, gives gives away more of the story, whereas the short story is much more subtle. So I'm very excited about our move in the podcast towards looking at more written stories.
2: It's interesting because I think that this story could be interpreted as either testing triumph or testing surrender. I think the film feels more clearly like a triumph, although it is still a bit ambiguous. I personally landed on testing Triumph as the global story, but I also watched the film first, so that may have colored my reading of the short story. I really enjoyed the film, and I think that maybe I personally just enjoy a more immersive experience that may not lend itself as well to ambiguity, so that may be why the short story wasn't as satisfying to me as the film. I'm still unpacking that, but that's, again, one of the great things that we're doing by looking at both the text and the film.
3: And I focused on the short story this week and even in doing that, I also landed on morality as the primary genre. But the subgenre for me was much harder to identify. I'll talk about that more in a little bit.
0: Excellent. Thank you for your insights there. Okay, so I'm talking about point of view and narrative device this season. And this is the subject of the third of the editor's six core questions if genre is what your story is about, then point of view and narrative device are how you deliver that story to your reader. Now, while point of view tells you whether your story is say first person or third person, and whether it's written in the past or present tense, the narrative device or situation tells you who is telling the story to whom, when and where, in what form and why. So while you are the writer and you write the story for your reader, there should be a fictional narrator or narrating entity that delivers the story to a fictional audience, whether you reveal this to the reader or not. Now, I go into the reasons for doing this in my bite-size episode from several weeks ago, but the main reason is that a specific narrative situation makes your life easier because you know who's delivering the story to whom, under what circumstances, and why. Now, I'll include links to that episode and my point of view articles in the show notes, but also be on the lookout for my forthcoming Story Grid beat. Point of View, The Primacy of Narrative Device. I've been starting my analysis with the narrative problem presented by the premise. So what's the premise here in this story? We have a man who must decide how to care for his lifelong partner when her mental health declines and the relationship as they know it changes beyond recognition. The result is captured really well by a line in the film that actually doesn't appear in the short story. And it's when Fiona says, I don't think we should be looking for something we like, Grant. I don't think we'll ever find that. I think all we can aspire to in this situation is a little bit of grace. Now the Rolling Stones might say this a little differently. You can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you might find you get what you need. Now, it would be hard to explore this problem without some deep background and context and internal experience. So hold that thought for a moment. The global genre, which here I've identified as morality testing triumph, calls for a protagonist who is selfish on some level in the beginning, choosing what they want over what someone else needs. By the end, they make sacrifices on some level for others. And what better way to show this than with their own actions, words, thoughts, emotions, but curated by a meticulous narrator? Okay, so if we look at the point of view, just what's on the page in the short story, The choice is selective omniscient. We experience the story through Grant's senses, his thoughts, and emotions, and it's written in the past tense. The narrator isn't commenting directly, so we have an objective narrator. But indirectly, we pick up on what the narrator is thinking or suggesting through the event's thoughts, emotions, words, and actions presented. The narrator doesn't tell us directly what they think, but they help us understand the point of view. So what's the narrative device here? I struggled with this for quite a long time, and I'll talk about that a little more below. But Anne suggested that it could be someone like Christy. She's the only provider at Meadow Lake that we get to know, and she helps Grant quite a bit with his transition. Of course, I thought when Anne told me this, who might have access to the details of people's lives in this way and be able to infer what they don't know based on people's actions because they see so much. Of course, it's the person who cares for the residents and also talks to their loved ones. Now, in the film, there's a moment when Grant speculates about what Christy must be thinking about his life with Fiona, that their life must seem easy compared to hers. Christie, in this moment, comes as close as she ever does to criticizing him when she says he just doesn't know what she thinks that she would rather be the person who stays than the person who leaves, and that she suspects that Grant wasn't always so devoted to Fiona. She explains that in her experience, it is the men who think that not too much went wrong. Now, this is the film, it's not the written story, but when I reread the story through this lens, it makes perfect sense. So who is telling the story? Again, on the page, this is undisclosed, but I really agree with Anne's suggestion that someone like Christy would tell this story this way. So when is the story being told? The narrator appears to be telling the story immediately after Grant brings Aubrey to see Fiona at the end. We don't see what happens after that because in a way it doesn't really matter. Grant made a sacrifice, and we can, of course, argue about the depth of that sacrifice, but he's made a sacrifice for Fiona, and that is what the narrator wants to encourage us to think about. So to whom is this story directed? Who is the audience? Well, if we're correct about the who, to whom would they want to deliver their message? I think the message would be for the family members of the residents. It's as if Alice Monroe is acting as a master translator and scribe for someone like Christie. And the form does feel as though it's written as opposed to spoken or in the form of thoughts. It's almost like Christy would want to give this story to every loved one when they bring their loved ones, when they're dropping them off, so they could understand what's to come. Now, this is clearer to me when I look at the why, because these two are so inextricably linked in my mind. A listener recently wondered whether they need to know the narrator's why in their story. That is, their purpose for telling the story. And I said, I think it's vital. If the narrator has no purpose, why would they take the time to tell the story at all? And similarly, why would someone listen? People generally don't, and characters definitely shouldn't, act without a reason, even if it's a selfish one or one we think is wrong. Incidentally, if you don't know why you're writing the story you're working on, I urge you to spend some time figuring that out. If you don't know why you're writing, it's really difficult to make choices, and of course then, how will you know if you're hitting the mark? So if you're not sure about the why, where do you begin? Start by thinking about the basic reasons we communicate with someone else—to inform, to persuade, to entertain. In other words, to get what we want and need. So then think about what does the narrator want and need and keep asking questions to get more specific. If I'm telling the story to inform someone, I include the information I want them to know and of course leave out other facts. I'll structure the information in a way that the person can most easily understand it, remember, and apply it. But if I'm telling the story to confuse or mislead, I would choose different facts or present the same facts in a different way. If I'm writing to persuade, I include the details that I think will be most persuasive and structure them in a way to build an argument. If I want to entertain, I include the details that are most entertaining and I would structure the story in that way as well. In other words, The purpose informs both your content and the structure. So what's the why in this story? Why might someone like Christy want to tell this story in this way? Uh, I'm speculating here, but someone like Christy probably wants the loved ones of the residents to do the right thing. When life gets hard and when you can't get what you want in the ways that you're used to getting it, it's easy to say, I just give up. I won't engage. Now, I think Christie would suggest grace can be found if we stop focusing on and give up what we want and can't have. So the ultimate why and controlling idea that I would assign to this story, whether we're talking about Monroe's masterpiece or Polly's skillfully adapted film is... Love survives when life partners are willing to sacrifice what they want for a little grace. So how well does this combination work in this story? Well, you can probably tell that I think it works really well. And sometimes when the controlling idea and narrative device are so well aligned, it's hard to say why it works so well. And I think we have that situation here, which is why I struggled in answering the questions at first. And of course, that's why it helps to look at the story from different angles. Consider what the answers could be rather than what they are. And don't be afraid to flounder and get it wrong. Use what you know to solve for what you don't. And I can't say enough how useful it is to have a study group. I gain so much insight by struggling with the material, then discussing it with my fellow roundtablers. Okay, so that's my take on away from her and the bear came over the mountain. So, Kim, you're going to talk about creating a
2: crisis. I'm veering a bit off topic today, but I think it will be worthwhile. Let's hope. Leslie told us last week that a short story seems to focus on one or more of the five commandments. Wolves of Karelia felt like a resolution. And I would say that this week's story feels like a crisis. The crisis questions really stuck out to me in the story. And I think that may be a characteristic of morality testing stories, which I personally am really fond of. They tend to lean more heavily on the crisis question. Because unlike other internal genres that seem set up from the start, at least in retrospect, morality testing stories aren't over until the curvy woman who is beautiful at any size sings. Morality testing stories can end in triumph or surrender. So let's look a little closer at some of the key crisis moments that stand out in this story. In the film version, there's a lot more weight put on the beginning hook crisis of whether or not to put Fiona in Meadowlake or any assisted living. Grant toils over this decision. We see him take a tour of the facility. He asks a lot of questions, and then he continues to struggle about it at home. He struggles in part because he won't be able to visit her for the first 30 days. And it's Fiona who really believes that she needs to be checked in. And then in both the short story and the film, we see a moment when they are on their way to Meadowlake to check Fiona in. They drive past a road sign for a conservation park. It's a place that they had skied together, cross-country skiing. And Fiona remembers it. In the short story, it goes like this. Fiona said, Oh, remember? Grant said. I was thinking about that too. Only it was in the moonlight, she said. She was talking about the time they had gone out skiing at night under the full moon and over the black striped snow, in this place that you could get into only in the depths of winter. They had heard the branches cracking in the cold. If she could remember that so vividly and correctly, could there really be so much the matter with her? It was all he could do to not turn around and drive home. So then, in the middle build, he faces several additional crisis moments in the film version as fiona's attachment to aubrey plays out grant faces the question on how to proceed should he interject himself should he interfere should he take her home he still visits her daily but he mostly decides just to stay out of the way so as not to upset her after aubrey leaves Meadow Lake and fiona's health declines she is at risk at being sent to the second floor and then she is in fact sent to the second floor And Grant's decision to comply with Meadowlake's rules is a big one. And we can feel the crisis that occurs on either side of that. Before, you know, whether or not to allow her to go onto the second floor or to take her home. And then after, how now to help her, possibly by trying to get Aubrey back. This leads us, of course, to Marion's doorstep. He tries various forms of flattery and persuasion, but he fails to convince her to even let Aubrey visit, even if Grant drove him there himself. But when Marion calls him back and invites him out for dancing, now he also must decide how to proceed. As Leslie mentioned, the film explores the relationship between Grant and Marion more fully. There is a great moment when they're driving down the road together and she asks him to pull over. And she tells him, I know what you're doing. It would be easier for me if you could pretend a little. And then they exchange a, you know, it's really a a kind look of understanding. And then in the next scene, we see them in bed together post-coitus, and they're both kind of blown away by the experience, and it's very amusing and kind of sweet. Within this scenario, we see several crisis questions implied. Does Grant call her back? Does he pursue something more romantic with her? Does he attempt to persuade her to let Aubrey return? Does he sleep with her? And she too faces many of these same questions. I appreciate that in the film, it's clear that she's in on it. She's not being duped. She expresses agency in their decision to sleep together. In the final scene of the story, Grant visits Fiona in her room on the second floor. He has brought Aubrey to see her. In the film, it's as though Aubrey has come to stay, not just visit, because we see Marion packing up her house, presumably to sell. And also, I'm assuming that she's moving in with Grant. But both in the short story and in the film, they give us this fabulous final crisis moment for Grant. She said, look at this beautiful book I found. It's about Iceland. You wouldn't think they'd leave valuable books lying around in the rooms, but I think they've got the clothes mixed up. I never wear yellow. Fiona, he said. Are we all checked out now, she said. He thought the brightness of her voice was wavering a little. You've been gone a long time. Fiona, I've brought a surprise for you. Do you remember Aubrey? In the film, it's clear how much her being like herself really affects him. It's an echo of that moment in the beginning hook when she remembers the conservation sign. But he forges ahead and announces Aubrey. To me, she seems to understand which makes her final line to him so powerful. You could have just driven away, she said, just driven away without a care in the world and forsook me, forsook me, forsaken. To which he says, not a chance. I actively noticed this final test for Grant. And as Norman Friedman, our father of the internal genre, the way he puts it surrounding morality testing stories, he says, When he makes the only proper choice, we end with a feeling of satisfaction that our faith in him has been justified. And I personally feel satisfied with Grant's decision. In both versions of the story, I enjoy noticing what is shown and what is omitted. The turning points and crisis moments really stood out to me, but the climaxes, that is the decisions and actions, were less so. Often we would jump past it and we would infer the decision that had been made. I think this technique works really well for a short story. And you can also use it in longer works. In all cases, we can ask ourselves this all-important question. Does the reader need to see this? How will including or omitting this moment change their experience? Does it make it closer to or further from the experience I am trying to create for them? For a morality testing story, I think the crisis question is a great place to linger, as it's uniquely qualified to showcase the crisis. Which may often be omitted or inferred in a scene of another genre. And especially lingering on screen when we don't have access to the character's inner world. But just as Leslie is showing us with narrative device and point of view, it's essential to know what experience it is that you are trying to create. Only then can you make the kinds of intentional choices that we see in this story by Alice Monroe and Sarah Poley.
0: Thanks, Kim. The crisis questions are really clear, even though they aren't expressly identified on the page or on the screen. It's as if Grant is thinking around them, thinking of the facts that would be relevant to him when considering these decisions. That works really well here because we see what's at stake for him and what the choices mean through the subtext. Okay, so Anne, you're going to really dig into the details of the very beginning of the story. So tell us what you've learned by looking there.
1: Well, I've got the universe in a grain of sand effect here. It's how the opening scene reveals the whole meaning of the story. I'm going to put a microscope on that opening scene because the more I looked at it, the more I began to understand how a short story works, which has been my whole goal this season. Last week, I traced the motifs and symbolism that ran through Wolves of Karelia and how they conveyed meaning almost subconsciously to the reader. It was a story that I had to read two or three times before its meanings and its global genre began to unfold in my conscious mind. And that is one of my first conclusions about a well-written story. You, or at least I, have to read it at least twice before it will begin to reveal itself. i found the same to be true with The Bear Came Over the Mountain, so I think I've found one important key to short story writing, and that is the careful and precise selection of details to deliver multiple meanings at once, a surface meaning such as a character trait and deeper meanings about the character's true desires, the real story, the author's intended controlling idea or theme, and so on. The opening scene of The Bear Came Over the Mountain has a montage quality in under 300 words. We get a vivid and specific picture of Fiona as a young woman when she and Grant first met, and that's what you read off the top the first time you look at it. Now, as a side note, if you've ever wondered how the movie scene type of montage could translate to the written page, this scene is a good one to look at. The specifics in the opening at first reading seem to be nothing more than clever shorthand for Fiona's character traits. Like I said, she's the well-to-do daughter of a cardiologist, but she thinks sororities are a joke. She's at college. She and her Icelandic mother are left-wing liberals, a fact that Fiona's conservative father tries to ignore. She plays labor and revolutionary songs on the phonograph if she thinks it's going to make guests in the house nervous. She has several suitors who are interns at the hospital where her father works and she makes fun of Grant's small town way of speaking. She proposes marriage to Grant out of the blue because she thinks it would be fun. Now from this description we can see Fiona's objects of desire at least as they appear through Grant's eyes. She doesn't have any obvious unmet needs. She's a nonconformist. She wants to have fun and enjoy life. She seems to like surprises. She seems not to like order. Fiona's desire seems to be breaking rules or norms, not to be pinned down or not to be conventional. So marrying a man from a different class proposing to him even would seem to fit that desire. It's a great character sketch. But look a little closer, and you also get Grant's objects of desire, and these are what's going to drive the story since he's the protagonist. The scene, and therefore the whole story, begins with the words, Fiona lived in her parents' house. Big deal, right? But the motif of houses runs throughout the story, and it signifies, among other things, the anchoring factor in people's lives, both as a security anchor and a bondage anchor. The fact that the house is both luxurious and disorderly, that's Fiona's parents' house, makes it seem perfect, presumably, to Grant. Like Fiona herself, the house is warm, comfortable, and not restrictive. Now, the final line of the scene goes, he never wanted to be away from her. That's where they get the title of the movie. She had the spark of life. The spark of life. She has what he can't live without. Could it be that he's a little bit dead inside, cold and needing that warmth, poor and wanting a richer life? Well, let's see. That opening scene also mentions, casually, that Fiona owns a pile of cashmere sweaters. Now, I don't know about you, but I own one cashmere sweater, and let me tell you, they are warm and cozy. The house is described as being in, quote, luxurious disorder, unquote. It's a cold, bright, windy day on the beach when Fiona proposes to Grant, and of course he accepts. He shouts, yes. The Bear Came Over the Mountain shows us what Grant is right from the first scene by indicating what he lacks. The spark of life, warmth, The juxtaposition of warmth and coldness is even hinted at by the two songs Fiona likes to play to shock her parents' visitors. The Internationale was used as the Soviet national anthem. Now, this is obviously not something that's on the page. I had to go look it up, right? And the four insurgent generals is from the Spanish Civil War. That's Russia and Spain for another subtle juxtaposition of cold and warm. Not a single word is wasted in this scene. As I looked more closely at just this opening scene, I began to see how much Alice Monroe packed into those 300 words. Fiona describes one of her suitors as a Visigoth. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a typical college girl thing to say, maybe flaunting her new knowledge from a freshman history class or something. But of the infinite number of ways Alice Munro could have chosen to show this character trait of Fiona's, why did she pick the very specific term Visigoth? Because the Visigoths, or the Goths in general, to be precise, were the force of chaos that took down the old order of the Roman Empire. It's a reiteration of the motif of luxurious disorder in Fiona's life, her wild-haired mother and her precise, wealthy cardiologist father. And this fascination with the luxurious disorder of Fiona defines Grant. After all, the story is told from his point of view. He seems to be the one remembering these details. Throughout the whole text, we get further clues to Grant's inner emptiness. The point of view emphasizes his gaze. In the second scene, where 50 years later, he and Fiona are leaving for Meadow Lake, he's looking at her. We get a detailed description of her physical appearance. She has arrived at the age of 70, still trim and attractive with long white hair, fine bones, sapphire eyes. In fact, much of the description, if you subtract the mention of her age, would do for a fashion model. But as to who she really is, all Grant's point of view can deliver is that she is direct and vague, sweet and ironic, doesn't really tell us all that much about her. And throughout the course of the story, we never learn much of anything about what Fiona has been doing for the last 50 years. While we get details about Grant pursuing his university professor career, and he philanders with returning women college students and then later goes on to young students, while he congratulates himself on always coming home at night to his wife, we get very few clues as to how she fills her days. There's a pair of wolfhounds that she lavishes care on when she learns that she can't have children. And we know that she cross-country skis. But other than that, from Grant's point of view in the story, she seems to exist mostly for him to come home to. She exists for him to congratulate himself on. All of this is hinted at in those first 300 words. Now, I could go on for days about how Alice Munro put meaning into every choice of specific detail throughout the story. I won't, but some of that will be in the show notes. But let me just mention a couple more standout clues that helped me decipher the story. First, the name Grant itself is suggestive of being given something, granted something. This will play throughout the story. He's just lucky. He escapes the consequences of philandering by the skin of his teeth, mostly because of Fiona's family wealth. He doesn't deserve what he has, he has merely been granted it. And then there are the flowers. When Grant goes to visit Fiona at Meadow Lake for the first time since dropping her off, that's after the 30 day wait, he brings, of all possible flowers that Alice Monroe could have picked out of a hothouse florist's shop, a bunch of Narcissus. This was the most telling detail of all. Grant is a narcissist he's empty inside. He needs Fiona to love him. He sits inside himself and judges every woman he encounters on the detailed points of her physical appearance and nothing more. That's all he's got. And this sense of him that pervades the story throughout its selected details from beginning to end is what creates the subtle narrative drive that clues us into the internal genre. It's the question of whether he will redeem himself in the end. And I think the story ends ambiguously on that note.
0: Anne, thank you so much for highlighting these rich details. It's just, it's one of the really powerful elements of the story that makes it extraordinary. Okay, now, Valerie, you're going to go macro and talk about the fundamentals of of story.
3: Yeah, I know I said I was going to focus on the forces of antagonism this season, but this week I want to take a step back and look at the fundamentals. Alice Munro won the Nobel Prize for her short stories, so this is a golden opportunity for me to see how or if, those all-important editor six core questions apply to short stories. Now, short stories seem to have been relegated to the backbench as somehow lesser forms of literature. At least, you know, that's how it looks from where I'm standing. They were never part of the curriculum when I did my undergraduate degree or when I was working on my graduate degree, and both of those were in English literature. I don't see anthologies featured in bookstores, and I really don't hear my writer or my reader friends talking about short stories or anthologies. That is, until very recently. So I, for one, as a reader and a writer, think that short stories are brilliant. As writers, we get to practice our craft on smaller projects, which are much less overwhelming, at least (laughs) in terms of their length. And readers don't have to commit as much time to them. Look, these puppies were made for busy people. You can totally read them on a cell phone while you're commuting. So I have my fingers crossed that they're going to make a resurgence. And if you're interested in short stories, then Alice Monroe is an excellent place to begin your study. She really is a master. Even if these aren't the type of stories you want to tell, there are lessons here to be learned. All right, given that my focus is how the editor's six core questions apply to a short story, I intentionally did not watch the film this week because I didn't want it to cloud my analysis. All right, here we go. The editor's six core questions of The Bear Came Over the Mountain. What's the genre? Well, globally, I think it is a morality story, which I've referenced earlier. And I'm having trouble figuring out what the subgenre is though from the short story. I think it's probably closest to punitive, except that Grant isn't really punished. Well, not really, anyway. Yes, he strikes up a sexual relationship with Marion so that he can get Aubrey back to the nursing home for Fiona, but that hardly compromises his morals or constitutes a punishment. (laughs) I mean, he's been having affairs with other women for years. This is just who he is. I mean, it's true. He's not particularly attracted to her. A walnut-stained tan and cleavage that is crepey-skinned and odorous isn't exactly a ringing endorsement. I mean, come on. But then he didn't seem to be overly attracted to the other women he had affairs with either. Plus, he's quickly able to switch his focus from those things to the practical sensuality of her cat's tongue. So, like, dude doesn't seem too broken up about this. He does eventually manage to get Aubrey to the nursing home, but of course, by then, Fiona has forgotten who Aubrey is. That's a beautiful irony, and I'll talk more about that in a minute, but it isn't a punishment. The global spectrum of value for a morality story, from the most negative to the most positive, is as follows. Selfishness masked as altruism, putting one person's needs ahead of self, putting the tribe's needs ahead of self, and finally, sacrificing self for all humanity. Grant never moves out of the negative values. In fact, he's mostly at the negation of the negation, which is selfishness masked as altruism. Now, the secondary genre here is a love story, and there's no doubt that he does love Fiona. However, I'm hard pressed to find a solid example of him truly putting Fiona's needs ahead of his own. And of course, he never puts society's needs ahead of his own. I don't think this is a failure in the storytelling. I think it's one of the strengths. Let me explain. For example, on the one hand, I can say that Grant putting Fiona into Meadow Lake is in her best interest. So it would be an example of him putting her needs ahead of his own. Although she seems fine and he wants to bring her home rather than to the nursing home, she needs the care. And so he puts her need for care ahead of his need to have her at home with him. Okay. On the other hand, there's no reason he can't care for her himself, at least longer than he did. Monroe gave us a description of Marion looking after her husband. Grant and Marion could have met anywhere. That scene could have taken place at Meadow Lake or in the parking lot or at a coffee shop. Instead, Monroe chose to put it in Marion's home so the reader could see that it is possible for someone with less advantages in life to care for an ill spouse. Now, I am not suggesting that Marion is a saint or that it would have been easy for Grant, but Monroe made some really interesting creative choices here. She's created a character whose actions are questionable, and she puts him into a situation that is challenging even for the purest of hearts. This scenario is rich with interpretation. And this is one of the biggest things that I've noticed about short stories, and I'm I'm about to echo exactly what Anne just said, and that's the economy of storytelling. Everything in a short story, at least in the ones I've studied so far, everything is doing double and triple duty. There is no room for anything superfluous. Now I've given one example here, but like there's tons. All right. So what are the conventions and obligatory scenes for a morality story? Well, the first convention is that you have a despicable protagonist who begins at his worst. Now Grant is despicable. Okay. But he, I don't think he begins at his worst. I think he ends at his worst when he consciously chooses to manipulate
1: someone for his own gain. You know, I'd argue, Valerie, that there are subtle clues. In fact, I did argue (laughs) that there are subtle clues to his despicable nature right from the opening scene. I think despicable may be slightly too strong a term for him really at any point in the story. But given that subtle interplay of point of view and specific details... I think you could make the case that the author, or at least the narrator, does not think highly of him even at the very start of his story.
3: Oh, yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, there are so many layers here to explore that, and I think we could do a whole episode just on the story's opening.
1: Just on 300 words.
3: <laughs> just on 300 words, exactly. So the next convention then is that there's a spiritual mentor or sidekick. And this is not the case here with the bear came over the mountain. And that's probably why Grant's shift is from bad to worse, (laughs) right? He goes from the negative on the value spectrum to the negation of the negation. Next, there's a seemingly impossible external conflict. And yes, there absolutely is. Anyone who has had to go through a loved one who's suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia knows that it truly is an impossible situation. Next, we have ghosts from the protagonist's past torment him. And yep, there's plenty of ghosts in Grant's past, but they don't really come back to torment him. He suffered some retribution in the past, but even he admits that it wasn't as bad as it could have been. He did lose his job, but he was given an early retirement. So all in all, even he says he didn't fare too badly. And I think this is another reason why Grant doesn't change. There isn't anything forcing him to change. And finally, there's aid from unexpected sources. And yes, I would say that this is true of Marion. Grant wants Aubrey back at Meadowlake, but of course, Marion doesn't wanna take him there initially. Eventually though, she helps Grant by allowing Aubrey to return to the nursing home. Okay, let me do a quick aside here. As part of my study into psychological thrillers, I developed a list of conventions and obligatory scenes for stories that have this psychological element. One of the conventions I've come up with is something I'm calling the Aikido strategy. And this is when the villain uses the hero's desire for his conscious want and uses it against him. So this is true in all the examples we studied here on the podcast, Whiplash, Black Swan, The Girl on the Train, Primal Fear, and Gone Girl. The bear came over the mountain is told from Grant's point of view. But look at this final exchange here from Marion's point of view. Grant is taking Marion's loneliness and her desire for companionship, and he's using it to manipulate her. Now, how is this different from what Fletcher, Thomas, Tom, Aaron, and Amy did in their stories? Well, it isn't, right? It's just the point of view that's different. This stuff is pretty fascinating. Okay, obligatory scenes. First, we have a shock upsets the hibernating authentic self. And yes, I think this is true. Fiona begins to forget things and wander off and Grant can't ignore what's happening to her. Next, the protagonist expresses inner darkness with an overt refusal of the hero's journey call to change. Grant does refuse to accept Fiona's illness at first, but I don't think this is the inner darkness that the morality stories are addressing, or at least not this particular morality story. Grant certainly has a sense of denial, which is very human and understandable, in his situation. But I think his inner darkness is expressed at the end when he makes that conscious choice to manipulate Marion. He's taken advantage of women his whole life, and he could choose to end it with Marion's phone call. He could have called her back and politely declined her invitation. Instead, he intentionally kept her waiting so as to increase her vulnerability. And he actually says this. and This is not interpretation. That's on the page. This is when his inner darkness really comes out and he makes an overt refusal to change. Next, we have the protagonist facing an all is lost moment and they either discover their inner moral code or they choose the immoral path. For me, Grant's all is lost moment comes when Marion refuses to bring Aubrey to Meadow Lake. And that's when he chooses the immoral path and decides to manipulate her. Next is the protagonist actively sacrifices self in service of an individual, a group, or humanity. That would be the positive ending. Or consciously chooses to remain selfish, and that would be the negative ending. So again, in that second to last scene of the short story, Grant consciously chooses to remain selfish. Worse, he consciously chooses to remain in the negation of the negation. He tells himself that this is for Fiona, and, you know, he probably believes that, but there's more to it. He's manipulating Marion for his own gratification as well. And finally, we have the protagonist faces literal or metaphorical death, and either loses the battle but gains self-respect, meaning, and peace, or wins the battle but loses those things. And nope. Grant does not face literal or metaphorical death, and this is part of the reason why he doesn't change. He's not being forced to. What's the point of view? It's third person limited from Grant's point of view. What are the objects of desire? Grant wants to make Fiona happy, or at least to give her mental and emotional peace. He needs to learn to put other people ahead of himself. Ha, fail. (laughs) What's the controlling idea or theme? Well, The Bear Came Over the Mountain ends negatively, in my opinion. And I think Sean's template controlling idea for the morality story really fits Grant very well. Here it is. Evil reigns when the protagonist pursues selfish needs ahead of the needs of others. And that's pretty spot on. And the last question is, what is the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff? Well, Leslie has already taken us through these three acts of a story, so I won't repeat them here. However, I do want to point out one thing. We've heard Sean and others, notably David Mamet, say that the ending must be surprising but inevitable. And I think The Bear Came Over the Mountain is an excellent example of this. Grant wants to get Aubrey back to the nursing home because he believes it's the thing that will give Fiona mental and emotional peace and happiness. He accomplishes that goal only to discover that Fiona no longer remembers who Aubrey is. In fact, she now remembers that Grant is her husband. She knows she's in a nursing home, and she's happy that he hasn't forsaken her. It's surprising because she seems lost to him. And it's inevitable because this is dementia. And that's sometimes how it goes.
0: Thank you, Valerie. I think you are addressing indirectly a question that a lot of people ask, which is, do the editor six core questions? does the story grid apply to short stories? And you have shown, of course, that it does, that it can, that we can use these tools uh, with s- shorter forms of fiction. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay, we like to round out our discussion with a few key takeaways for writers who want to level up their own writing craft. So what have we learned this week? Let's hear from Kim first.
2: My key takeaway today is no matter what you're writing, and no matter whether you're a plotter or a pantser, asking yourself what kind of experience am I trying to create for my reader will shed light on your choices. And And whether or not something will move you closer to or further from that experience. Taking this kind of authorial control is highly empowering. So you can stop second guessing your own intent and intuition and instead boldly write. Boldly right. I love that. I came to this study as a stranger
1: to short stories, as I have said, an antagonistic stranger. I don't like them, or I didn't. The short story doesn't do my work for me, damn it. I have to think. I have to interpolate. I have to reread. I hate that. I have to be willing to let it unfold in my mind after the fact. And now this is starting to become a real goal for me in my own writing. Never select specific details at random. Even in a novel-length piece, let every possible name, location, setting, weather event, image, and sound do extra work to tell the story that I want to tell, which of course means knowing what story I want to tell. And I expect that these fine-grained decisions come pretty late in the revision process. I will let you know as I learn.
3: And my key takeaway here is that short stories, at least this one, do follow the same global structure as other forms of storytelling. It's true that not all of the conventions and obligatory scenes were present, but I think there's a reason for them to be absent in this case. The point is that Grant doesn't change. If the missing conventions and obligatory scenes had been included in the story, then he would have been forced to change. I think that writers can get away with this because it's a short form of storytelling, although as I'm saying this, I admit, as I'm saying this, Mad Men is popping into my mind, and Don Draper doesn't change there either, and that's a long form of storytelling. So there you go. It can work for both long and short form stories. (laughs) This brings me back to something that we've said on the podcast many times. It's not about getting an A in Story Grid or about following a rigid set of storytelling rules. It's about understanding what the tools of storytelling are, what they do, and then putting them to work to tell the story that you wanna tell.
0: Hear, here. Okay, my takeaway is about Monroe's specificity. Monroe is so specific about the crisis that Grant faces, that it applies universally. But I also wanna say, You may see the story in a completely different way from us. We see it differently. And you could reasonably conclude that Monroe intended a different narrator, audience, controlling idea, or global genre. Some stories are written in such a way that they give the reader what they need, no matter what they bring to the story or where the reader is in their particular journey. Stories like this, just like people like Christie, create positive effort for the good in the world. Now there's a crap ton of work and attention to detail that goes into crafting a story like this, and that is daunting. But if this is the level of work you want to create, keep going and keep working at it. There is a way to do it. And I think the topics that we're studying and the way we're looking at stories this season by toggling between the macro story structure and the micro details down to word choice is helping us unpack how to accomplish this. And finally, to wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from Jewel Kuchera. Let's have a listen. Hello, Editor Roundtable Editors. This is Jewel Cuchera, and first I'd like to say thank you for these podcasts. Whether it's bite-size or full-size edition, they are so helpful, and I'm learning so much. So I'm one more person who appreciates the work that you do here. My question is not about genre or scene types or obligatory scenes and conventions. It's about character. I've written a lot of nonfiction, but I'm trying to write my first novel, And as I'm writing, some of my characters feel real to me, like I'm writing about real people that I know. But some of them feel thin or flimsy. And my question is, how do I make my flimsy characters beefier? Any thoughts you have are much appreciated. Thank you. Okay, Valerie, take us through your answer.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great question, Jewel. Thank you so much. And I was looking at character development a little while ago in my own personal study. I was thinking about the kinds of character sketches that writing teachers had me do where I had to list out things like what the character looked like and, you know, where she works, who she hangs out with and all that kind of stuff. And I was told to go find photos of movie stars and paste those onto my character sheets. And I did all that faithfully although I didn't understand why I had to do it. It never made sense to me. So of course I had to go and try and figure out what that was all about. And here's what I discovered. There's a difference between character and characterization. Characterization is the stuff that's observable. It's the superficial stuff and it's usually, but not always, irrelevant. But a character is more than what's on the surface characters are personalities and the kind of people they are gets revealed by their choices under pressure. So let me look at these two things in a little more detail. What do I mean when I say that characterization is usually but not always irrelevant? Well, there's lots of cases where even the gender and the name of the character isn't relevant. And if you don't believe me, look at the casting of Detective Riley in the film version of The Girl on the Train. It's a a male character in the novel, a female character in the film, and Neil Gaiman's novel, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, where the protagonist doesn't have a name at all. It's pretty cool. Now, there are exceptions, obviously. Sometimes how a character looks is what the book's about. You know, the, the character's gender or gender identity or ethnicity. That's what the story's about, right? And this ties into point of view and theme. Now, when I realized that characters aren't developed, they're revealed, and that was a major aha moment for me. The idea of revealing a character rather than developing one, ties into this whole business of show, don't tell. More importantly, it explains why the turning point, crisis, climax, and value shift are so important. It's the key to making a scene work. So since character is action under pressure, those old character sheets that you know all my teachers had me do, and that they're floating around on the interweb there somewhere, they aren't really of much use. So we need something new. And I went ahead just out of my study and I developed a new character sheet where I've got so far seven things that we really need to know in order to make our characters come alive and our stories shine. I sent it out to the people in my inner circle and you know that's the kind of exclusive content that I share over there. So if you want the full sheet, you can sign up at valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and I'll send you a download link for it. But for now, you can start by clearly articulating the objects of desire. Just that alone will help your story enormously. So start with the objects of desire, and when you're ready, you can pop over to my inner circle and get the full character sheet. I hope that helps to point you in the right direction and get you underway.
0: Excellent, thank you, Valerie. And thank you, Jewel, for your really thoughtful question. If you have a question about characters, characterization, point of view, narrative device, or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Thank you, Anne, Kim, and Valerie for your excellent editorial insights into the bear went over the mountain and away from her. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to think about point of view and narrative device in your own stories. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writing friends about us. Join us next week for a bite-sized episode when Anne learns to write. Hmm. We'll have a full-length episode the following week when Kim looks at story beginnings in Silver Linings Playbook by Matthew Quick. Why not give it a read and follow along with us?